everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Porno's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russian Eurasia, about the region's politics, and about other Russian Eurasia-related topics. In recent months, intellectuals and columnists have repeatedly compared today's Russia with the late Soviet Union. This comparison naturally comes to mind as more and more political activists have gotten arrested, jailed, fined, or pushed out of the country. Political rallies, even single-person pickets, have been outlawed. The government has waged a war of attrition against non-government organizations as well as against those media outlets that engage in investigative reporting. This war is beginning to look as a war of destruction. The government's interference in the realm of ideas has gotten broader and deeper. A growing number of history laws has turned the history of the World War II into a minefield. Even academic research is no longer safe. Earlier this month, bookstores have been instructed to get rid of books that have on the cover images of Hitler or other members of the Nazi Germany leadership, regardless of the context. The anti-Western propaganda is arguably even more intense than in the late Soviet period. The Russian economy has been barely growing in the past decade, which has led many prominent economists to talk about a new stagnation, an obvious reference to the late Brezhnev years. Curiously, in this year's public opinion poll, for the first time since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the name of Brezhnev has risen to the top ten most prominent historical figures. Is it fair to say that the post-Soviet Russia is indeed becoming more Soviet? And what do we even imply by Soviet beyond political constraints and police state practices? I'm talking about it today with Maxim Trudalyubov, independent journalist, uh, senior fellow at the Kennan Institute and editor-at-large at Medusa, an online media outlet that has been forced by the Russian government to label itself as a foreign agent. Hello, Maxim. Hello, and thank you for having me, Masha. Yeah. Thanks for joining me. So the political developments that I mentioned in my brief introduction seem to be impossible to deny. Do you agree that, at least in the political sphere, we're sliding back into the past? Those who thought of themselves as political activists or politicians, those who try to engage in political campaigning, have been reduced, it seems, to dissidents these days, individuals or very small groups outlawed by the government and barely supported by their compatriots. Well, thank you for the question. I've been thinking about it almost inevitably recently because the parallels, the comparisons, they come almost by themselves. When we look around, we see a lot of things that remind us of sometimes even those who never lived under the Soviet Union. I, I keep hearing that from people who are younger, let's say in their 30s and their 20s, who say things about Soviet parallels in our today's existence. But I do think that, you know, the past can never return, obviously, and uh, what we are seeing is a lot of political devices, political tools used by the current government that they take from, from their Soviet predecessors. But the environment, today's society, uh, today's point in history is very, very different. So we probably live in a situation where the people who are in government probably think about themselves as good disciples of 
of their Soviet predecessors. They keep saying they, including the president, Vladimir Putin, keep saying that they respect the past, they respect the Soviet history, the best in that history, but they confront a, a very different society that has been developing for these 30 years, for goodness sake, 30 years of completely different development than Soviet society experienced. We'll never be able, and they will never be able, to build the kind of state, the kind of political system that existed under the Soviets. So it's more about appearances, more about some kind of wishful thinking on their part than reality. However gruesome and sad sometimes that reality can be. We will, of course, get to the different experience into the past 30 years. But when today's leadership, Putin himself, as you said, and those around him, when they draw on the past, on the Soviet practices and even praise them, do you think this is an age thing? Do you think this is a matter of their professional experience? Well, it might be to a degree, but also... Mm, my feeling is that they seriously think that the Soviet Union was such a project that they want to emulate in a certain way and learn from the best practices, as it were, from those times. Uh, I remember a good description of the politician Leonid Brezhnev, Brezhnev head of the communist uh, government between 1964 and 1982 when he died. And one political scientist has described him as a good equity politician. Meaning by that, that he would always think of how to placate, how to support, essentially by buying out, by, by giving all kinds of incentives, material and otherwise, to those political forces he needed the most. And he used all the resources he had at, at his disposal to essentially buy out leaders of the national republics in the Soviet Union, leaders uh, of the countries in the former Soviet bloc, and other groups within the Soviet society that he considered important for the regime security. So in that sense, Putin clearly is a disciple, clearly is a, a student, as it were, of Brezhnev in that sense, because he understands very well that his power depends on the most powerful groups within Russian society. And those include regional leaders, big businesses, owners of so-called owners of big businesses, leaders of particularly so-called national republics, meaning those predominantly non-Russian ethnic regions considered by the Kremlin particularly important because they might theoretically, you know, have some kind of separatist ideas in those societies. So they pay special attention to those. So in that sense, Vladimir Putin is a continuation of uh, Leonid Brezhnev's politics. He has learned a lot from that. Actually, I mean, one has to acknowledge this is a smart way of learning from the past. I mean, to a degree, it does work uh, well for today's Kremlin, these kinds of politics. But uh, unfortunately, also, I mean, the flip side of this is that Russia has essentially stopped developing as an economy. And these policies, they have almost inevitably have this flip side of slowing down a country's economy. And that's what's been happening for the past 10 years.
And since you mentioned buying out or somehow compensating generously the elites of various kinds, and of course agree with you that in this, Putin's policy is not dissimilar. But what about the general public? It seems that uh, Brezhnev's times were also marked by a desire of the government to deliver to the people, to keep them reasonably satisfied, as long as the government was able to do that, as long as the government had the necessary resources. Do you think we see a similarity here as well between those years, late 70s, early 80s, and today? Well, I think that the current Kremlin leaders wish they would be able to provide better well-being for the majority of Russia's citizens. They apparently are not able to. And that's a big problem. They understand. It's just that my understanding is that supporting the elite, supporting the regional elites, uh, business elites, the inner circle uh, of Vladimir Putin is of such a paramount importance that everything else is secondary from the point of view of of the current uh, leadership. So that's why they they do understand that, yes, the stagnation is a problem, but they can't seriously commit themselves to developing the economy because it brings with itself the kinds of risks uh, that uh, they want to avoid. Right. And I think this too is not dissimilar from Brezhnev's days because there were ideas of economic reforms that probably would have increased the efficiency of the Soviet economy. But the government, the communist government, did not opt for that because that created political risks for the government. I think we see something that is not dissimilar today. I would like you now to turn to what you actually wrote about not a long time ago. And the piece that I have in mind was published in May and was titled, I think, Despite Similarities, Putin's Russia is not Brezhnev's. So after talking about similarities, would you please say what you meant by that? Well, mostly I meant that today's Russian society is very different from its Soviet predecessor. We had 30 years of development in a kind of environment that is very, very different. We had all kinds of experiences within those 30 years, and uh, a whole new generation grew up. I think somebody has noted that more than half of today's population are people who've experienced the Soviet Union firsthand. So we now have all the younger cohorts of the Russian population. They were growing up in a situation in a country for which its Soviet experience was just past, was just, you know, a matter of discussion, books, films, everything else. So not direct, not firsthand. And that, I think, is very important. Also, in terms of values, in terms of Russia's composition of values, Basically, as studies show, we more or less could be compared to your average Eastern European country. We are very modernized in the sense that we have small families, urbanized. People are not religious, contrary to what one might think looking at the sort of public rhetoric and propaganda. Russia is not a country of traditional values by any means, less so than the United States, for example. So we have this dissonance, we have this huge gap between the leadership's wishful thinking, between their ideas, their completely invented, constructed political reality that they create with the help of um, this huge dominance in media and other institutions that they have, and 
this gap between their wanted reality and the actual societal reality that we have on the ground. And it, it couldn't be farther apart, these two. So in a way, it's kind of an, an interesting experience of the political leadership that is almost utopian in its ideas of how they want to see their country and, and then the actual country that lives in a very different world. Right. You mentioned some concrete examples of how the Russian society changed. One of the examples that I also find quite important is private initiatives, private donations. Can you please talk about that? Because I think this is a very important difference between today's society and the society of 30 years ago. Oh, yes, that's very true. I think that basically that never existed before. It's something very, very new because, I mean, previously and particularly under the Soviets, opposition of any kind, political opposition of any kind couldn't exist. Even ideological opposition, even not a strictly political one, basically was killed off by the hyperactive security apparatus. So on the one hand, there is this security apparatus that's been restored and recreated by, by the current leadership, but it's not... I mean, even today, it's not as powerful as it used to be under the Soviet Union. And on the other hand, we have these societal changes that are inevitable and they cannot be stopped. And we see that for the past 10 to 15 years, probably more like 10, actually, there's this new phenomenon, private support of all kinds, voluntary movements, and what's really important, financial donations, by private citizens to all kinds of causes, not necessarily political. Uh, so in this case, it, it's sort of a virtuous circle, a combination of phenomena we, when we have social media. So there's basically the good side of social media, all kinds of fintech, what they call financial technology. People are able to use these platforms that are easy to use, friendly, and can donate small amounts, comfortable for them, small amounts of money to the kinds of causes they think are worthwhile. And that is very new. And that creates a pillar of support for Russia's civil society. I mean, civil society in the way it exists in the West is only able to exist because it has institutional support, because it can resort to law to courts to defend itself in russia's case it's whenever there is a political force or a group or a social or non-governmental organization that the kremlin considers problematic or a threat this kind of organization this sort of group are sometimes part of society let's think of for example of lgbt groups of all kinds they cannot defend themselves in the court of law simply because uh, the court of law in that situation would be biased. But there's this one little thing that changes a lot. That's the private donations. That's something that now we have that, however small, insignificant, that could be compared to the financial resources that the disposal of the government. Still, it's morally and, and sometimes even not just morally important that we have some parts of Russia's civil society that can support themselves, can send them their own feet because this support that's coming from Russian society. Indeed. And it's not just money that people are donating. They are donating their time. They are donating their effort. They are donating their effort when they help those in trouble with the government. 
right? There are initiatives that help those who are in jail, who have been detained, provide lawyers for them, even if the court of law, as you said, unfortunately, I have to agree with that, the court of law is not where they can find justice, but at least they can find support from the society and not just in terms of money. Exactly, exactly. Uh, that's right. Uh, the people contribute their expertise, contribute their time, and, and that's amazing. And that, again, and that is sort of against uh, the current uh, trend, because clearly Russia's political management doesn't like it. And they're constantly working on all kinds of policy ideas that would uh, limit that support. Indeed. Let us talk about what I think also at the same time is maybe similar at times, but largely dissimilar from those days, and that is ideology. Of course, by late 1970s, the Marxist-Leninist ideology was already reduced to an empty shell. We may recall Alexei Yurchak's seminal book called Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, in which he described Soviet people's modus vivendi in the communist ideological environment as life beyond that he called the way people live beyond the government discourse. His point was the communist language lagged farther and farther behind the changing Soviet reality. And uh, the Soviet people, especially younger ones, developed their own ideas, their own values, their own meanings in a kind of parallel reality. In a sense, I think we see something of a kind evolving today when the government, I would say in the past 10 years, has engaged more deeply in the ideological realm. They are talking about ideology, even if it doesn't have a name of Marxism-Leninism or whatever, still they are talking about values, they are talking about the way they would like the Russian people to perceive the reality around them, not successfully, of course, but still... I think you would agree with that. The government tries to operate in this ideological realm. Do you think there are instances where the government actually has been successful? Or do you think this is a complete failure? Well, I would say that this is a pretend ideology, not real. And again, it changes. They like to see themselves as ideological because it's kind of cool and it kind of reminds them of of those politicians uh, that were their predecessors under the Soviet Union. And those were real believers up until Mikhail Gorbachev, who was, he is, still is, a socialist, a person thinking in those terms. And all his predecessors were real believers, even Brezhnev, who, who might be considered sort of more cynical than others. But every, every leader of the Soviet Union was in in his kind of way, uh, uh, a sincere believer in the communist ideology. Nothing of the kind is, you know, is now. We don't we don't have that. You cannot really seriously think of any of Russia's acting politicians as ideological. They use it, they abuse it, they change it uh, according to their needs. They use it as a tool, as everything. They turn almost everything. They instrumentalize. That's what they do. That's that's the essence of this system. They just think about themselves as crafty, uh, cool, very smart political operators who can use almost any political tool, tool at their advantage. And, and ideology is one of those. They can pretend, uh, they love to pretend that they have some traditionalist values-based ideology, and they have not come up with a name for it, That's, which is which is a shame because I mean at least you know that would 
make it you know at least interesting they don't have they don't have a name for it it's vaguely called patriotism which is not really an ideology so no they they have not been able to construct an ideology they are very instrumental in everything they use for them security particularly regime security and particularly the security of the man at the top is the priority and once you have a priority like this it's it, it's sort of uh, it it means that it's not ideological it's something else it's it's political it's about the regime it's about keeping the political power but it's not ideological it's, it would be very difficult for them to persuade the russian society that they they actually have any sincere belief Indeed, uh, it would be hard, and uh, especially since there is no ideological authority. In the Soviet Union, whether or not the leadership consisted of believers or not, I am not sure I quite agree with you that all of them were firm believers, but at least there was a structure, and uh, there was a topmost ideological authority called the Ideological Department of the Communist Party, which drew on a hierarchy, a structure that disseminated, that inculcated their ideas put together at the top throughout the Soviet society. We don't have anything of the sort today, which makes this ideological project, I think, a failure from the start. Also, again, the concept of the traditional values is dubious, to say the least, in a country that lived through such a turbulent century, I mean, the 20th century which had at least two major ruptures, which dealt very heavy blow to whatever tradition that had existed. Anyway, I would say, and I wonder if you agree, that there is still one area, one ideological field, where the government has been reasonably successful. And this is a perception of the Great Patriotic War, the way World War II is referred to in Russia, and especially the victory in that war. Do you think this is where the government can boast a kind of success? Well, I mean, of course, in the in a conversation like this, obviously, I don't want to create an impression that I'm basically saying that they're unsuccessful in almost everything they do. But they they are reasonably successful, particularly from a kind the kind of angle that that they themselves look at their performance. If we consider that the main goal, essentially, the priority, is regime security, regime stability. They have been successful from uh, that point of view. There is a major, major drawback, obviously, is that the current regime, however you call it, and there are dozens of monikers for the kind of regime Russia has, it's personalist. And that means that it will end at some point. As for the war, yes, the Second World War is perhaps, well, the one and only item feature of that rhetoric and political environment that has been created in Russia that is non-disputable. Almost everyone agrees. Yes, and that, that's why it has been chosen, actually. It's, it's pretty obvious. It, it is almost the only unifying factor in Russia's society. Everyone agrees, from the workers, from the people, from the rural population, older to younger urban, you know, hipsters, everyone agrees, intellectuals, workers, everyone, that that has been a sort of a pinnacle of Russia's Soviet history. But then after this is recognized, then come all the uh, details and everything else, basically, and then the divisions 
creep in and continue and continue. Apparently what they do is they just want to keep this this feeling, this triumph, recreate and recreate again, artificially, obviously, this situation of historical triumph of uh, the Soviet people, of of that society, of, of those people who defeated uh, the Nazis, which was a, obviously a historical and incredible moment in our history, but you cannot uh, recreate it. It's also almost like they are engaged in, you know, historical reconstruction constantly, like those people who recreate famous battles of the past, you know, dress as, as knights or as warriors from the you know 17th century. So this is defeating the purpose in the end, this kind of approach. Okay, so before we wrap up, I would like you to say a few words also about the art and culture scene. It seems that this is where we find maybe the most striking difference today in the culture scene that existed back in the 70s and 80s and the one that we find, especially, of course, in large urban centers today. Oh, yes. I mean, I'm in Moscow now, and I live like in between places. So I've been in Moscow for a month or so, and uh, it's an incredible city. The kind of exhibitions, the kind of cultural events, the theater shows is incredible. It's, it's really is a world-class place. And the people and the level of understanding, the level of sort of the, the subtle discussion, the sort of the, the sophistication of cultural conversation in Moscow is incredible. And all that is, is happening against the background of, of really barbaric politics that essentially now we have this election that's approaching us in, in, in September and the government political management essentially is the security sector, the security apparatus so-called Soloviki, essentially as their second leg. I mean, they're rounding up almost everyone who they don't like to run for office. And they're just they're just arresting or detaining or otherwise creating problems for people who, who want to run for a public office in Russia, which is incredibly strange and ridiculous. This, this We sort of live in almost like live in two different time spheres simultaneously. Culturally, Russia is a highly developed place that is essentially a European culture. Politically, it's it's so much backward if we think in terms of backward and forward in terms of political openness and ability to run for office. And that's Russia is incredibly backward politically. And when you hear Russia's political managers boasting about their success promoting the ruling party, when actually they're achieving that so-called success and they're promoting their party essentially with only through violence because they resort to violence indiscriminately. They use it all the time. And that creates an incredible gap, incredible contrast in the kind of picture one sees when one is in Moscow. Indeed. And this leads me to my last question. Given this gap, given this kind of counterintuitive freedom in the cultural realm and the regime that is getting tougher and tougher politically, in your view, what is the prospect for this regime? We know that uh, Brezhnev's stagnation then gave way to liberalizing reforms and eventually to the collapse of communism and then to the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
Now, given the gap that you described, given the differences, but also some of the similarities that we've talked about between now and late Soviet regime, does the current regime look more brittle or more resilient to you? Well, it's very difficult to compare things. I mean, historical parallels are flawed by definition. We always highlight the similarities. Uh, we forget about the differences. It's just you know a, a feature of uh, human mind. We want to highlight what we think is, is you know suits us in, in this particular discussion. So basically, the answer I, is I don't know. It, it does look like it's more resilient, but again, I'm saying this from the midst of you know 2021 in Moscow, and who knows how it is in uh, in reality. The structural differences between today's Russia and the Soviet Union are so huge. I mean, we really have to bear that in mind. I mean, nothing compared to, for example, the Soviets' military spending, nothing compared to that is possible today. By the end of the Soviet Union, that was almost 10% of Soviet GDP, all kinds of defense military spending. Today is, is, is much less. Of course, I mean, all the effort has been made by the government to, to make sure that government or publicly connected or Kremlin-connected businessmen control a lot, huge parts of, of the economy. Yes, they do it. And if we use the thinking of, let's say, sociologists from Hungary, who calls these uh, kinds of regimes mafia states, excuse me, sorry about the term, and who analyzes these things in terms of a lack of separation between politics and political and economic power. Yes, that is true. What basically happened is if we take a really, really big picture view for the past 30 years, what happened is that people who were able to get political power they were also getting an economic power. Those are inseparable. And that makes this regime, I think, more resilient. They, they have a lot of resources. They can pay for things. They can buy up support in the country and abroad, and they use it. So in that sense, it, it, it's a very cynical, it's sort of pragmatic institution, Russia's current government, which is essentially not the government, but the administration of the, the president. But yes, in, in that sense, we probably can say that they, they are devoid of the kinds of deficiencies, problems that an, an ideological government brings with it. They don't have, because they are about the power and they are very open about it. So in that sense, they probably are stronger. But there's a flip side to that. There is, a, I mean, if you concentrate on power and the only thing basically makes everything tick is is power, you will lose it in the end. It's uh, it's hard to explain, but it's sort of almost inevitable because there should be things that are more important than power. And in today's Russia, there are no such things. I mean, politically, for the current government. Okay, so they will lose it in the end, I think, is a good thing to say at the end of our podcast. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you.